This is the Quadrants of Mental Health Podcast with Dr. AJ. All right, we're back to Quadrants of Mental Health. I have with my special guest, Mr. Charlie Hinch. He's an attorney in the Richmond area practicing criminal law um, for Quadrants of Mental Health. Please share, like, subscribe, comment. Um, you know what you need to do. Now, you're trying to build a platform here, and hopefully this is informative. And we have shows already done, so you can reach me on uh, Apple Music and Spotify, and we're building out a YouTube channel, so that's why I was saying subscribe, like, hit the button. Um, now, Charlie, we're back. Um, I want to focus a little bit more on now. This process for you is—is is it relatively new? I know it's a part of your journey. It, um, but how has the the legal profession received you? And when you talk to people about this process and what you're trying to do. What is some of the, what's some of the feedback you've gotten from the legal community? These are your your um, other attorneys and maybe judges you may talk to. What kind of feedback have you got? I've had tremendously successful results when it comes to using what I referred to before as, as uh, three and four of how do you defend a case. And that's my client today is not the same person they were yesterday when they did those facts or this is what you need to know about my client to know that they're not the beast or demon that you believe they have to be to, be, to do that thing. Yes. Um, and so if you can, trauma-informed practice has six tenets. Try not to re-traumatize is the first main thing. Mm -hmm. And then you say we need to give them safety, give them a voice and a choice, give them transparency, give them empowerment, and partner with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are the, those are the, the tenets of trauma-informed care. Partner with, you're talking about with your client. With the client. Okay. Um, one thing that really unsettled me years and years and years ago was I was walking down the, the, the a particular court in the area, I don't want to say where it was, and I heard a uh, what I knew to be a court-appointed lawyer. I don't remember who it was. I just remember them saying to the defendant, I'm your court-appointed lawyer, not your court-appointed friend. Mm. And part of me chuckled at the at the at the concept. Yes. Um but I've, you know, I've gone through some difficulties myself. I don't want to air out all my, all my skeletons. But, you know, I've gone through circumstances where I need lawyers. Mm -hmm. And when I was sitting in that chair looking at the person that was typically me, mm -hmm. um, and I think this is why lawyers are such bad clients, is that there is the vulnerability is immense. Yes. And then how do you because tell, you know. Yeah. And then how do you tell them all of your deepest, darkest secrets and truly trust that when you say that to them, that they will respect the fact that it's a deepest, darkest secret and a danger to the case. Right. And not open their mouth in even an accidental way to release that secret in a way that's going to harm me. Harm you. And even, I'm even not it, just necessarily now, but later. Right. Right. You know, right. And then the, the added part of the problem, I think, is with, with using lawyers um, locally. And I think you still can. But the additional fear is we are all colleagues. Yes. Right? And so how do I know that I'm not going to become the brunt of a joke because of something that I'm, you know, and and I'm not saying that, that there are not trustworthy lawyers in, in town. I've, I've, I've used them. Um, but that's the fear, right? The, the, fear. the fear is that this is, you know, um, I want you to help me out of this situation. I don't want to have the same kind of betrayals here that I've experienced in my life. All your life. Right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, so the challenge is, how do you get what's what the response you've gotten from utilizing the, the trauma phase? So and them not understanding 
a lot of it, you know, so okay. you have to educate them right. and teach them some things too. So what, what is the feedback you've gotten from them? So I've gotten really good results with, with judges and I've gotten, um, I've gotten a mixed bag of results or a mixed bag of communication or response from the legal community. Everything from, Charlie, people don't want to know that you're going to care about their feelings. They just want to know you're going to win. Right. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So you get that. You see, it, that's kind of the old, uh, you know. This is weird. This is a. This is a. This is war. Yeah, like, this is know, war. This is um, business. Right. Let's make this. Yeah. Money. Yeah, but uh, you know, if you read Sun Tzu Art of War, I mean, everything is a battlefield, and so if you can understand this and you can win the battle before you ever need to before fight it, you need to fight. Then you can win the war, and you don't have to worry about all those. You know, much yeah. of the, and especially in criminal defense, think about this, and all of everyone that that everyone that talks to me about. It's how much do you win? You know, how that that's what everyone wants. Yeah, how much do you win? Know. How bad would our criminal justice system, and it's got flaws, I'm not saying it's perfect, but how bad would it need to be for every case that I represent to be found not guilty because the facts are insufficient, mm-hmm. right? Now, I've tr- I win a tremendous amount of cases, right? But do we think that, that judges don't slightly believe police officers more than they believe the, the average? I mean, Every single one of us has gotten into a speeding ticket, right? Yeah. And I don't know, every single one of us said I wasn't really doing it, or this is what you need to know, that right. even though I was doing it, that you should get let, let it pass, right? Right. When, when we're in the hot, but, but speeding, like even something as simple as speeding, and then the story always goes, that officer, did he didn't know what he was doing, he didn't know, but I mean, it's whenever, when we all are put in the exact same similar circumstance, we all act the exact same similar way. Exactly. Um, and even so, the train. Even attorneys, and sometimes more so, because we, we 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 do not deal with vulnerability well. We are the one in charge, right? Right. And then the other thing that we do is we mistake effect with control. Mm-hmm. And I did that when I first went to to, to, to therapy. I went to a CBT counselor um, uh, in 2017. Um, and so you've asked me a couple questions. You've asked me you would ask me a couple questions about how did I go in the journey, and then you also asked how it was received. Yes. So let me. Let me address how it's received. And the lawyer mixed bag, as I've already spoken. The other thing is that criminal defense is a mixed bag of people that are accused of one being criminals and two, many instances, being accused of being addicts. Yes. Which are two really shameful identities. No one, no one, no one, even people that think people that are the criminals, no one that has the identity of criminal thinks of that themselves. Not a single one. And they'll do everything they can to keep that label from being attached to them, even though the rest of the community or the rest of, of, of the culture would refer to them as that. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and the sad that part is, about it is for a lifetime. For a lifetime. You know, right. They don't think about, okay, something happened when I was 17. Right. You know, right. and they don't know right. what led up to that. Right. You know, I, I give an example. I have a friend of mine. Um, sure, he, he tells this story all the time. His name is Hassan Zarif. He committed murder at 17. He was so high, he don't even remember doing it. And he did 17 years in jail. And his journey to getting his rights restored, and now he's working in the prisons as a, a, a what do they call him, a pastor. Oh, yeah. You know, he's, he's turned his whole life around. So he didn't let that one incident define him. For a lifetime, you know, he was angry and bitter when he first got in. He said he went through his challenges, but as he grew and became the person he is today, you know, um, drug free, you know, married, you know, I mean, just living a different life. Now, some people will say, 
shake the finger at him and say, look what you did, look what you did, but not look what you've become, look what you've made out of yourself, right. you know? And, and a lot of times we don't think about those things. And, and I know people who have felony convictions, hard for them to get jobs because something that happened 20 years ago. I wrote a bad check. Mm-hmm. You know, I was writing bad checks when I was 18, 19 years old. I did two years in jail. Oh, you're a cop. Right. Really? Right. So so we just caused that person to relive that trauma, relive that trauma, and think now, now they begin to think something is wrong with me versus I did something wrong. Well, I think that, two that separate things. I think that starts very, very early. Yes, very, very early because we are. I am who I think you think I am. Yes, and you don't. You think that I. You think that I am a criminal. Right. And a criminal is a bad person. Right. Well, think, think about how we just get to talk about addiction right now. Listen yeah. to Atomic Habits. You know, everything is a habit. Everything. You know, everything. And we are built for habits. Yep. The thing is, is whether or not that habit. And we're all running from pain, right? That's another human trait. So it's a life trait. You run from pain. Mm-hmm. The coronavirus. You know the reason why they suspect that the coronavirus is with each iteration is going to become less and less um, uh, deadly mm-hmm. is because the virus wants to the virus wants to mutate and stay alive. If you kill your host, you can't you can't. And so, and I'm not sure. I don't want us to. I have not vetted that. So right. if we need to get in, but. That was something that I, the article we were talking about, and why do we believe it's always going to mutate into something that's, that's less deadly? And that's the, that seems to be what the philosophy is. But it works well, maybe not well in the current um, culture, but it works well as an idea that we, you know, we, life runs from pain. Yes. And if the trauma that you experience is the pain and the identity you have with that trauma, as far as a shameful identity, mm-hmm. I am weak. Yes. Right. I didn't have the ability to stop that person from sexually watching right. me that way. I am weak. I didn't have this. I wasn't able to keep them from being a mom. Right. I was weak. Um, I was told that I wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Right. My my parents divorced because of me. Because of me. You know all of these things yeah. and these memories that are really painful, and we don't stop to look at the unconscious thought about it. What do we think that it defines about ourselves yeah. because it happened? Not just the unconscious thought, but the unconscious behavior pattern that that comes that's born. Right. Out. So then we get that stress you know? level risen, and then the amygdala picks up, and that's your fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mechanism. Right. Your prefrontal cortex has your executive brain function and your and your response based on foreseeable consequences, right? Right. And so we talk about react or respond, react right. or respond. Which one is the, you know, which one is the nerve that is, you know, you know, when you put your hand on a hot plate, mm-hmm. it's a reaction to pull your hand off. It's not a response. It's right. a it's a ner- it's a nervous reaction. reaction, right? And so we we are having this. I think that we exist on four planes: physiological. And uh, cognitive, emotional, and then there's a spiritual plane. Um, and I think each one of those existences, and I've got a diagram I call it interpersonal string theory. Okay. But a diagram, each one of those existences has the same Venn diagram with other circle on top. Mm-hmm. Knowledge, access, and control are the original three Venn diagrams, and then intimacy. Mm-hmm. And so we need to have knowledge, access, control, and intimacy and build those connections with those existences out. Right. Emotion is not generated on its own. Emotion is generated off of a cognitive belief or thought, right. or value. Right. It's about I, emotions right. are value based. Right, because they come from the the cognitive value. Uh-huh. I think she loves me. She's not going to cheat. Therefore, I feel. But now she cheated, <laughs> and now and now I and now right, right, and she's not yeah. going to. So therefore, I am loved, and right. I feel loved. Right. But then you get back to, and this is not for everybody. This is for some people. But, oh, I think she cheated, mm-hmm. but I thought she loved me. Right. And now there's that. There's that friction of belief system in the cognitive that now creates that that emotion yeah that's negative right because it's a it's a it's almost like a violation of that yeah um, therefore i trust no one 
Right. And then it, right, right. And then it goes into the into the, the physiological because that's what we call the biofeedback. Right. You know, and then we use that when we talk about biofeedback and neurofeedback. Right. Um, quick short story about something we were talking about earlier about um identity and never felt thinking about ourselves as that thing, right? We talk about it in a couple things, addiction, criminal. And here's how it works. Um, I, in my trauma journey, personal growth, started reaching out to, to this, this group of professionals that you talk about with this team, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things I'd heard about from Vessel Vanderkolk's book, The Body Keeps the Scores, yes. not just eye movement desensitivity recalibration, which is a type of talk therapy um, involving, you know, um, cross-hemispherical brain work, usually with the eyes, but you can do it with other things. The other thing that he was talking about, which is a, a successful um, trauma treatment, is neurofeedback. We mentioned it earlier yeah. when I said that there's a that they claim that they can cure 90%, the 90% cure rate of ADHD, because ADHD on a, on a physiological perspective is a brainwave problem. Right. Your, your um, theta waves are too high, which is the theta wave area of the brain that talks about relaxation. When you're in the shower and you're washing your hair, um, and you, that's when you have your that that eureka moment, right? Is because you're in theta, you're in theta brainwave function. Mm -hmm. You and I are in beta wave right now, which is the which is the, the frequency above theta, which is um, like social interaction, discourse, and, and it's a very specific area of the brain. ADHD is is that the theta brainwave, the theta, that brain when it's in theta, it's in too high, it's not in the optimal frequency, and when it's in beta, the frequency that it's using is too low, it's not an optimal frequency. And so neurofeedback has this ability to, to actually monitor those particular brain waves mm -hmm. and then give you a biofeedback screen. So it's like a race car or it's just rocket ship. And when you and you can't do it purposefully, like it's you have to let your body settle into it. And the body is trained to get positive rewards and it wants to win the race, right? And so as as you allow these other these things to work in your brain that you don't have an ability to measure otherwise. Your spaceship starts to move forward when you can get those brain waves to be in more a more optimal frequency area, and that's the way they, they start to work on on ADHD through neurofeedback. You know, one of my challenges with um, even with dealing with ADHD and, and uh, being in the field as long as I have, a lot of times we have clinicians who are quick to diagnose right. based on data supplied to them by mom or dad right. and you give this child this diagnosis right. whereas what i found when you slow that whole process down and i do believe people have adhd but a lot of times when you slow that process down you will see that trauma is the basis of it right and i'll give you an example I had a client he was homeless right him and his father living in the car all their stuff was in the car that they, they were able to get he would get to uh, um, what the shelters. Every now and then he would get to a shelter. Every now and then he would get to a shelter. And three o'clock, two o'clock every day at school, he was like this. He was all over the place. And they said, oh, he's ADHD. No, this kid is thinking about where he's going to sleep at. No shower, can't eat, all these other things going on in his mind. He, of course he's going to be racing. You know, but if you understand the trauma, a lot of times if you eliminate the trauma, guess what? The behavior still works. You know, that's the challenge.